This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. We're reading scripture today from Acts 17, verses 22 to 31. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. All right. Thank you, Ralph. Man, I love it when Ralph reads Scripture. I mean, it, if that's not like the voice of God. Man, it's that radio voice, Ralph. Thank you. You are a treasure and a blessing. You and your lovely bride, Gert. Yes. All right, you ready? I'm going to tie a, a, a story about my mom into this scripture. How's that work? It's kind of like a, a mystery box, but a little bit different. So, um, Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorite quotes, he said, Everything I am, anything I ever hope to be, I owe to my mom. Do you know that? Abraham Lincoln said that. And uh, I'll tell you what, I am so grateful... Uh, that God gave me a grandmother who prayed for me and gave me a mother who encouraged me in my faith. Uh, what a blessing uh, that that was to me. And, you know, one of the things I appreciate about my mom as I look back upon her life and, and raising me as a single mom, by the way, single mothers, there's hope, okay? Um, I know it's tough sometimes, uh, but my mom raised me as a single mom and a dedicated mom, but one of the things that she was able to do was she was able to communicate to me 
uh, things that I necessarily didn't want to hear, but do it effectively so I would get the point, all right? So my senior year in high school after football season, I thought that the school year was over. All I had to do was graduate. And uh, so I wasn't very attentive to my studies. And so as the second semester was going along, there was some need for improvement notices that came home, you know, academically, that kind of thing, because I had senioritis, a really bad case of that. And uh, I remember one afternoon I came home from school, and I went into my bedroom, and there on my bed was a, a stuffed caricature of a hobo sitting on my pillow. And I picked it up, and I went in, and I asked my mom, Mom, what is this all about? And she said, Well, Todd, I just wanted to remind you of your future if you don't get serious about school and graduate in June. This is what you have to look forward to in life. What? Did she get her point across? She sure did. This morning, in our passage, uh, we are looking at the Apostle Paul. Now, you might recall uh, that Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke, uh, they, in response to the call to go to Macedonia, had gone to Philippi, where the very first church on the European continent was established. And, and, and there, they were encouraged to leave by the, the magistrates of the city. And so they did, or at least Paul did, they left. They went to uh, Thessalonica, and there they began to preach the gospel. Things got stirred up, uh, and there were some Jewish believers who made it very difficult for them there. And you remember, Paul had to flee. He left Timothy and Silas behind, and he went to, to Berea. And there he shared the gospel in Berea, but they were more noble than, than others, and they were wanting to hear from God. Not only that, they were wanting to apply what they heard to the Word of God, so they checked what Paul taught against the Scripture, and then they applied it to their lives. But there were some Jewish uh, people who came from Thessalonica down to Berea and chased Paul out of Berea. And so he goes now to a place called Athens. And Athens uh, is the hub of Greek culture. It is the center of Greek culture, um, religion, um, intellectualism. I mean, it is the place. And he goes there to Athens, and as is his uh, custom, he goes to the synagogue, and he begins uh, to teach there in the synagogue. And from there, he goes into the marketplace. And while he's teaching in the marketplace to all the people that are gathered there, uh, most of them are pagans. They're not God-fearers. Uh, they don't have exposure to Scripture. And so he's teaching them. There are some philosophers that are there. Uh, there are the Epicureans, and then there are the Stoics. And uh, the Epicureans, they were an interesting group. Uh, they believed that the chief end of life was to avoid pain. Okay? Avoid pain. They were really about the material aspect of life, materialism. And in their uh, efforts to avoid pain, uh, they believed that you wanted to have pleasure, but it had to be measured, okay? 
You didn't want to have so much pleasure that you did something to cause you pain. So it was a measured pursuit of pleasure. These were the Epicureans, all right? Now, um, they believed uh, that uh, when a person died, that um, their body and their soul ceased to exist. These were the Epicureans. Then you had another group. They were called the Stoics. And the, the Stoics believed in self-mastery. In other words, you could, what, master yourself, master your spirit, master your body. And, and their thing was that you were, you were to be indifferent to either pain or pleasure. There was an indifference that came from being master over uh, your own self. And these were the, the two major schools of philosophy at that time. And uh, some of the Epicureans and some of the Stoics were there in the marketplace when Paul was teaching. And uh, he was teaching something they had never, ever heard before. And as a result of that, they're going to invite Paul to come to a place called uh, the Areopagus. Uh, and the Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares. And Ares was the god of war, or it was also known, i.e., as Mars Hill. And it was there that this council of the Areopagus would meet. And in the council, you had both Epicureans and Stoics. And in ancient Greek, uh, this court or council exercised authority in civil and religious matters, especially matters pertaining to morality. Okay? And this is the group that Paul is going to address. Now, it's very interesting. You see Paul sharing the gospel, right? Teaching from the scriptures in the synagogue. Why? Because those who would be Jews or God-fearers would be familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so he would go there, and he would teach there, and he would teach that Jesus is the Messiah. He would teach from the Scriptures, using the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised one of God. Okay? Then he went to the marketplace. Now, in the marketplace, you wouldn't have God-fearers. You would have uh, just the bulk of the Athenian population, and they would have been pagans. And they would have uh, worshipped many uh, pagan gods. All right? And so he wouldn't start there from Scripture, would he? Because they had no knowledge of Scripture. So he didn't try to uh, convince them uh, of something they had no knowledge of. He started from where they were. And one of the things you're going to see in the marketplace and in his address to the Epicureans and the Stoics on Mars Hill is he doesn't reason with them from Scripture, he reasons with them from nature, from creation. We call that general revelation, that God has revealed himself to us in creation, that we would know that there is a God, that there is a creator. And so he, he's going to do that. He's going to start with where they are, right, and give an explanation for what they already know, a fuller explanation to help their understanding. And in this case, he's going to um, note something that he's seen. It's an inscription in a temple, all right, because there are temples to gods. 
And there was an inscription made to the unknown God. And so he says, all right, I'm going to contextualize the gospel, the scripture, and I'm going to start within the culture that's established with what the people know. And I'm going to connect what they know to the reality of who God is and what his plan is for humanity in his son, Jesus Christ. You see that? So that's what he's going to do here. And he says, you know, I I saw the inscription about the unknown God. Let me tell you that he is known and let me tell you who he is. Now, it's very interesting. When Paul was in the marketplace and these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, invited him to come uh, to the Areopagus, to the, to the court there, uh, to give an explanation of what he was teaching. In Acts 17, verse 18, it says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, because that's what they did, right? They debated, they reasoned together. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to do? It's very interesting. Let me tell you what that word babbler means. It means one who picks up seed. Now, have you ever seen a chicken, right, in a, in a farm or a barnyard, how they pick the seed, right? They pick up seed. And so a babbler uh, was a derogatory remark, And what they were essentially doing was accusing Paul of being a person who picked up philosophy like a chicken picks up seed in a courtyard that doesn't really make any sense. There's there's no continuity. He's just picking up bits and pieces here and then he's teaching Babel. That's what they're accusing him of. All right? Interesting. So he's going to go and he's going to, to teach them using nature or general revelation and philosophy. He's actually going to quote Greek philosophy and Greek poetry. Again, starting with something they know to try to direct them towards who God is, His plan for human history in Jesus Christ. Okay, So he's contextualizing the message. Starting in the culture, where people are with what they know and giving them an explanation that will lead them into a relationship with God and ultimately with Jesus Christ. So that's what he's doing here. Now the whole thing started because as he looked around Athens, it was full of idols. Idols, temples made to various gods and goddesses. And he was greatly distressed with that. But rather than condemning them, rather than going at them and uh, accusing them in a real judgmental way of the error of their way, he, he attempts to meet them where they are and bring them from there to the Lord. That's what he does. Now, I came across some statistics from a man named David Kinneman in his book, Unchristian. And in that book, he quotes a survey uh, that was done. And let me show you what it says. It's looking from the inside or from the outside in. This is what people outside of the faith think about those of us in the faith. 
He says uh, 90, excuse me, 9 out of 10 young outsiders, those are those that are outside the Christian faith, 87% said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. Okay? Don't blame me. It's their perception looking from the outside in. Okay? Then they said of non-Christians surveyed, 84% said they personally know at least one committed Christian. Yet, just 15% thought the lifestyles of those Christian followers were significantly different from the norm. So, what does that say? It says that people looking from the outside in see us, especially younger people, and they see us as, as being judgmental. In other words, they hear a lot about what we're against. They don't necessarily hear what we're for. Does that make sense? And then they say that of those Christians they do know, there really is no difference in how they live from anybody else. And what I want to say, it ought not be that way. And Paul, rather than looking at all the idolatry around him, right, and pronouncing judgment on those who were idol worshipers, which most were in the Athenian Greek culture, rather than doing that, what did he do? He started where they were. He, he looked for cultural markers that he could use to point them to God into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in this case, it was the inscription to an unknown God. Now, in Acts 20, 24, Paul writes this. He says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Do you see that? That was his personal mission statement, that he recognized that his life was to be about testifying to the grace of God that is revealed through Jesus Christ, his Son. And I would contend that you and I, as those who are pursuing Christ and Christ's priorities in the world are to be intentional about evangelism. That's one of the markers, one of the ten markers of a healthy missional church. Intentional evangelism. In other words, we need to be intentional about how we live our lives, that in word and in deed, we would share the reality of who Jesus is. And that God provides an opportunity for people to come into relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. That God offers forgiveness of sin. That God offers a new life that's available only through Christ. And that we need to be intentional about how we live. That both in word and deed, we're committed to being intentional about living out and sharing our faith. That's what it means to be a, quote, evangelical. Okay? That we live and share the good news of who Jesus is. That was Paul's mission. And I would contend that that's God's plan for each and every one of us. Whatever our context is, in the workplace, on the playground, the hockey arena, in the little league field, in the rotary club, right? At school, in the neighborhood. That we would meet people where they are. 
and connect with them with what they do know and help direct them to God and to His Son, Jesus. That's what Paul was doing here. In 1 Corinthians 9, 22-23, Paul says this, I have become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. Okay? I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And so we see the Apostle Paul here on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, not trying to force them to believe something, but rather being patient with persuasion. Patient with persuasion. Meeting them where they were, looking for cultural markers that he could help them connect to the reality of who God is in his plan for human history in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the center of God's plan for history and the hope of future resurrection. And in his address, again, he, he points to creation. And then he says the God who, who is responsible for creation, the God who created us as humanity, is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over nations and the affairs of nation. And, and from there, he talks about uh, God has been patient, but a time is coming when God will judge humanity. But, but, Jesus is the center of God's plan for history that through Jesus, God offers relationship with Himself. And this is what He shares. And He shares that God has given the ultimate proof of who He is by raising Jesus from the dead. That the resurrection is the ultimate proof of the power, the authority, the sovereignty of God over all creation. That's that's what He presents here to the Stoics and the Epicureans. And in the end, it says there were some that didn't want to hear him anymore. And there were others who came to faith. Although, interestingly, there's no evidence at this time that a church in Athens was ever established. And we don't read of any miracles that took place there. But later on, he's going to move to Corinth, where a very vibrant, alive church is established. So there's, there's three things that I want to suggest are necessities for you and me if we're going to engage our culture. If you're going to engage the world where God has you placed. All right? If we want to follow Paul's example. Number one is the authority of Scripture. We talked about the centrality of the Word of God last week. Is that correct? Now, as we look to be intentional about connecting people with the truth of who God is, right, we need to be certain about what we believe. Because it's very easy to engage the culture and have the the culture instead engage us. And if we're not certain about what we believe, if we're not grounded in the Word of God, the centrality of Word of God, then we can be led astray. Do you know that? And so if we're going to engage culture, we know we have to know what we believe. We also have to know Scripture so we can connect people with what they know within their culture to the Word of God and the truth of who God is. So number one, if we're going to engage culture, we have to. We have to come under the authority of Scripture. We have to be biblical Christians. We have to know what we believe for our sake and the sake of those 
that we're sharing our faith with. The second thing is the accountability of community. The accountability of community. We do this in community, that God calls us on mission together, that we live for Christ in the world together, that we encourage each other and spur one another on, and that we would be accountable to one another. And that's especially important as we engage the world. That we can be in the world, but not of the world. We don't want to become like the world. We don't want to be, like that statistic said, only 15% of non-believers who knew Christians believe that they were any different than anyone else. And accountability to culture helps us stay on, on target. It helps us from wandering away. If, if in my engagement of culture, I begin to be led astray and begin to live my life in a way that's inconsistent with Scripture, that the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters, will say, hey, Todd, hey, come back here. Wait a minute. Are you really sure you want to do that? Do you see that, how important that is? If we're going to engage the culture, we need to engage it together and be accountable to one another. I had a man in a church once come to me and said, God has given me a mission. I said, what is it? He says, it's a mission uh, to uh, dancers at a men's club. I said, really? He said, yes. That, that I want to go there and, and, and I want to be like a customer, but I want to share the Lord in the men's club. And I said, now, wait a minute. I, I, you know, I applaud your desire to see people come to faith in Christ, but are you really sure the Lord is telling you to do it that way? By the way, does your wife know about this calling? All right. You see, that's the authority of community, isn't it? It's the accountability of community. Wait a minute, brother. Come on back here. All right? The third thing is active witness. There is nothing that grounds and roots us in our faith as biblical Christians as when we are active in both what? Proclamation, sharing, and living demonstration of our faith. That we need to be about that. We need to be intentional about that. And so those three things are important. If we're going to follow follow Paul's example, and if we are going to live in the world for Christ and be intentional about evangelism, about sharing our faith. Number one, to come under the authority of Scripture, the centrality of the Word of God. Number two, we have the accountability of Christian community with us, behind us. And number three, that we have an active witness that we are intentionally living for the Lord wherever He places us in the world. Well, I want to close this morning with a quote. It comes from Richard Stearns. And he says, The American church looks too much like Disneyland. The predicament of the American church is that we live a kind of magic kingdom. Like going to Disneyland, you buy your ticket, and once you're inside the gates, everything you experience is controlled. The rides, the food, the shows are all there to entertain and amuse you. All you have to do is be there and observe. Yet just beyond the walls of Disneyland is Anaheim and the rest of Los Angeles, including the streets of Compton, South Central Los Angeles. This is the real world with real problems. Pollution, congestion, drugs, violence. Islands of upscale neighborhoods surrounded by slums. Inside the magic kingdom, the outside world is almost inconceivable. 
And then he concludes, As Christians, we too are tempted to see our world that way. We can start thinking that our job is to invite a few fortunate others into the theme park, away from the troubles outside. But our job is not to increase the attendance at Disneyland. It's to tear down the walls and transform the world outside. That's what it means to pursue Christ's priorities in the world. And we see a great model of how that can happen in Paul's address, right? On Mars Hill. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that each of us has a call in our life to live for you in such a way, Lord, that as followers of Jesus, grounded in the authority of your word, under the accountability of our faith community, we are to be active witnesses in the world for Christ. Lord, would you help us to live intentionally for Jesus, wherever it is you've placed us. Lord, that we would ask your Holy Spirit to give us discernment into the hearts of people, that we might start with what they know and then using Scripture, point them, Lord, point them to the only one who is the true source of life, and that is your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, today, would you help each of us to leave here aware of not only our responsibility, but our opportunity to live for you and to be a part of your plan for humanity in the world. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.